Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Teresa Rebeck. Teresa is a prolific and widely produced playwright whose work can be seen and read throughout the United States and abroad. Her fourth Broadway play premiered on Broadway in 2018, making Teresa the most Broadway-produced female playwright of our time. Other Broadway works include Dead Accounts, Seminar, Mauritius. Other notable New York and regional plays include Seared, Downstairs, Scene, The Water's Edge, Loose Knit, The Family of Man, and Spike Heels, Bad Dates, The Butterfly Collection, and Our House. The Understudy, View of the Dome, What We're Up Against, and Omnium Gatherum. As a director, her work has been seen at the Alley Theater, Rep Company, Dorset Theater Festival, The Orchard Project, and the Folger Theater. Major film and television projects include Trouble, starring Angelica Houston, Bill Pullman, and David Morse, NYPD Blue, the NBC series Smash, which she's the creator, and the upcoming female spy thriller. 355 for Jessica Chastain's production. As a novelist, Rebecca's books include Three Girls and Their Brother and I'm Glad About You. Teresa is a recipient of the William Inge New Voices Playwriting Award, the Penn Laura Pell's Foundation Award, the Lilly Award, and more. Teresa, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. The first question I always ask is the same, which is, where are you in the world? Where's home for you? I live in Brooklyn. I live in Park Slope with my husband. And we spent some of the pandemic, we have a little farmhouse up in Vermont, and we spent some of the pandemic there in the summer. It's beautiful and isolated. I would love to hear your origin story. Did you always want to be a writer? You're obviously a writer of many different mediums. Which of those did you start out wanting to write? Or tell us your origin story and your career trajectory to this point. Yes, I did always want to, there were times I wanted to be something else, but I was saying like when I was six years old that I was going to be a writer. So there's an element of, of absurdity to having fallen into it, into that in my imagination at such a young age. I mean, what does it mean if you're six years old and saying you're going to be a writer? But I dreamt always of being a writer. It was magical to me. And I was an early reader. I think that's partly what happened, that it was such a beautiful escape. And when I was a kid reading books, you know, really simple kid books, I did think I could do this. I mean, it was sort of exciting to be reading these little sentences and thinking I could do this. And then later on, so my early dreams was of writing fiction. And then when I got into the theater, I started as, as you know, like so many people in high school, I acted a lot. And then at some point, I thought, well, how do you put those two compulsions together? You know, wanting to write and really being compelled by acting. 
And the answer was playwriting, you know? And so when I was 16, I sort of decided, well, I guess that means you're a playwright in a way that it was sort of like A plus B equals C. There was an extraordinary clarity to it that has never been there again. And so there were a lot of moments when I was still quite young, when I would think, well, better get going on that playwriting thing. And I was, you know, in high school, I was really improbably good at math and science. And so my much more practical Midwestern parents just assumed that I would become an engineer. My father was an engineer or a doctor was kind of my dream. I did want to be a doctor. But then it just, you know, you just fall into, I don't know that that you just fall into what you want. It just didn't take all that math and science. I liked it so logical and sort of beautiful. But, you know, I, as I was kind of going through college, I kept going back to this, this truth of my heart, which is that you're a playwright, you gotta be writing another play. And actually, when I was at the University of Notre Dame, and they didn't have a playwriting program, I had to really urge the department, the theater department, to add a playwriting class, which they did. And then later on, you know, I became curious about other kinds of writing. You know, you can't, when you're a playwright, you really, in the world that we live in now, it's just not a solitary. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who makes a living as just a playwright. So I started working in TV and film as a way of making a living and supporting my playwriting habit. And I became very, very intrigued by those forms of writing. And then at a certain point, you know, it was a dream of my youth to write fiction. And so I started writing novels. I did, I really had a moment where I thought, I'm going to be really mad if I die without having tried to write a novel. So that's what sort of got me going in that direction. Love that. Would love to begin the episode's process section by going through pretty linearly from how you get ideas to all the way to completion. With that said, I know you work on multiple mediums. Maybe with each question, we can look at it holistically. I imagine there are some similarities and some differences. Starting with inception, how do you usually find your ideas? And does that differ across those mediums, whether that's a play or film script or novel? You know, I actually have a lot of ideas. I get them all the time. I think that at a certain point, the whole idea of if you write a lot, you kind of get your technique very high. And then you can kind of, part of that technique is sensing when there's an idea hovering and then letting that idea have enough space to bubble around for a while. And usually what I do find is that if I have an idea for a while, it starts to claim a bigger and bigger space in my head. And and then the next move off of that is to see what happens when I put it on paper. I do believe, and I always sort of encourage my students, who I hardly <laughs> really ever talk to, that I I believe in that technique is a great source of energy and curiosity and truth. So for me, developing technique came out of writing a lot. And I think part of the reason I started writing a lot is because I was writing for the theater and it takes a long time for plays to get done. And then also, this was like in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, when you're a big nobody, people aren't just like racing to put everything you write on the stage. So I'd finish something and then 
really not have anything to do with it for a while. So I would write something else. And then when I started working in TV and film, I had a job and I also still saw myself as a playwright and felt the passion for being a playwright. So I kept writing plays while I was also on staff of a television show. Then I got offered a movie and then I had to do that too. So I was writing a lot of different things at once out of this kind of strange compulsion and conviction that I could pull that off. And so I was writing a lot. And also right before this, I got a PhD in English. And that was something else that, you know, I had started this PhD and then I thought, I don't really want to be an academic, but I also didn't want to have this PhD hanging over my head the rest of my life. And so I thought, you better finish this dissertation because if you don't, then you'll carry this box of papers around with you and, you know, computer disks and shit like that. And that anytime things don't quite go the way you're hoping, you might end up thinking, oh, I, maybe I should finish that PhD. And I didn't want to think that. I didn't want to spend any more time thinking about academics. And so I also, before I really started down this road of writing for film and TV and the theater, I had to finish that dissertation, which was, you know, it was 400 pages long. It's a really long document, I think. So I got into the habit of writing a lot and not judging it and, you know, being loose with it because revision is your friend. And so that became kind of a process for me. And it keeps access to ideas pretty loose. A lot of times I feel like ideas are just floating around for anyone to like pick out of the air. But I don't think that everybody can do that. I think that you have to really be kind of in the zone and that the more you write, the more you kind of place yourself in the zone. As you come up with ideas, regardless of the medium, the next step I would imagine is building that out, flushing it out. And usually for some, it needs an outline for others. Others don't like using outlines. But from your perspective, especially across all those different mediums, do you use outlines? And what does your outline process look like? I generally, in the theater, I always feel like I like to keep it a little loose. My theory has always been you should pretty much know what your first act is before you start writing and then have an idea of what the end is. But that if you outline it too completely, it doesn't fully reveal itself to you. There's always something that I end up defining as the secret subject, as the thing that's kind of buried in there on a deeper psychological or spiritual level. And that's sort of in the territory of the subconscious or, you know, whatever you want to call that part of your brain. And so I don't want to over outline because I feel like when you do that, you somehow close the door on that. And there's something about the surprise of, you know, it feels like that part of the story needs to feel safe and have more pieces around it before it reveals itself. So generally when I'm writing for the theater, I have not been writing outlines. I think that I started really being very wary of outlines also slightly in reaction to the fact that in television and film, they really lean on them a lot. And when I was out doing a lot of writing and TV and film, 
in the 90s, it came to be something that was sort of wearing on my spirit because it is such a part of their process out there. They need to have everything spelled out in documents. And I would get, you know, at some point I'd feel like, oh my gosh, if we've written it so many times, why are we writing the script finally? Now, at the same time, I do want to say that I have been wary of writing outlines in general, and that came to be much more challenging when I started writing fiction. I think that for me, fiction needs a good outline (laughs) because it's too complicated. Novels are so big and complicated that I couldn't keep control of them without knowing where I was going more specifically. You talked earlier about the first draft. What does getting that out there look like? Is it just taking that outline and converting it, putting all the thoughts in your head onto the paper? Is there more of a strategy to it? What is your process for that first draft? And how long does it usually take? I believe a good, fast first draft. And I have gotten faster as time moves on. But generally for me, a first draft takes about six weeks. If I'm working on several things at once, sometimes I'll, I'll write the first act, then take a little time off, do something else. Or So I think just recently, the play that I started at the beginning of the pandemic took me about three months to write a first draft. And then it took me another three months to write the second draft. I have written, there's one play that I wrote, which was pretty successful, The Understudy. I wrote the first draft in 11 days, but then that took a lot of revision in a way that I really enjoyed. It was, you know, it it proved to be kind of sturdy material. Sometimes, you know, you really know you've got something when, when you revise it, you keep poking at it and anywhere you poke, things flower. You know, you like go, oh, look, you could do this here. Or you could do this other thing here. And it's sort of, that's kind of my favorite version of the process. It's really charging through a first draft and then poking at it and seeing what blossoms. I tend to be a little faster than a lot of people, but, you know, maybe not. I don't know. But I'd be curious to find out how long other people take for first draft. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. 
And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. How do you prevent yourself from overthinking it? I imagine that's a big step that most people get stuck on is they're trying to get everything perfect in the first draft where it's, like you mentioned, really about getting it on the page, getting that first draft finished. I'm sure you catch yourself sometimes overthinking. So how do you keep pushing? Well, you know, I'll tell you the danger of this version of a process is if you make a misstep, you can really find yourself in some place you don't want to be at all. You know what I mean? And that's the thing for me, that's more the issue. You know, I don't get my head so much as I get ahead of myself going in the wrong direction. For me, what's a really good process tends to be write 25 pages and then have somebody read them to you, somebody that you trust and just check in which puts a kind of set of brakes on my process in a way that you go, just slow it down, have somebody read it to you, do a little thinking with some smart people, and then keep going ahead. Because sometimes if I move too fast, all of a sudden I have like 30 pages where you go, you know where you went off was all the way back there on page 27, you know? Again, I think that I'm just somebody who... I've done so much of it. I mean, a lot of people go, wow, how many plays have you written? And compared to most people, I've written a lot of plays. That means it's sort of like being an actor who gets to act a lot. You know, when you work with an actor who's, you know, I've worked with some really great actors. I have to tell you, that's been one of the great pleasures of my life and the great gifts of my life. You know, working with Julia White over and over and over again, she's a genius, unequivocal. And Janet McTeer and Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, you know, Christine Nielsen, Christopher Evan Welch, Reg Rogers. I mean, I've got a whole bunch of, you know, Lila Robbins. I could just keep going with the staggering list of great actors I've gotten to work with. And these are actors who do it a lot. And so their technique is right at their fingertips, you know. And so you can watch them very quickly. They're in command of the language, of the emotional content, where the laughs are, if it's comedy. I mean, there's a kind of joy in the instrument in doing it. And I feel like I've got some of that. And so I don't get in my head so much. You know, you kind of go, you don't need to question that. You can question that later. (laughs) Just keep going. That's my recommendation to any writer who is starting out developing their own kind of technique is i would say keep writing love that i would love to discuss revision when you get to a place where you finish that first draft i know you mentioned you can share it with your friends what do the next steps look like how long does that process usually take and how does the process of revising really make up the bulk of just getting that work to its final place that's a really good question Generally, what I do when I revise, and this actually sort of overlaps with the first draft, is you have to sort of back up and read everything over. And then it always feels like the first move into revising is knowing one or two things, because sometimes revision can seem daunting. There are a lot of different things that can happen, and you don't know where to start. And so for me, I usually try to boil it down to 
one simple thing that you can do that's not scary, that it's like one place or two places or three places where you need to change a set of facts or add a short scene in this moment so that you can sort of ease your way back into the thing itself. Because once you have a draft, then you basically have a thing that exists apart from you. You know, like while you're still writing that first draft, it's kind of you and the thing you're writing are kind of one entity to be too sci-fi about it. But it's a sort of you're in process of creating this thing. And once you've written the end of a first draft, then the thing exists apart from you. And you have to figure out a way to re-enter it. And it's got its own set of rules already established by that first draft that you are then going to engage with, you know? And so you have to really be careful at the beginning of revisions. I think you should be careful all the way through revision, honestly. But for me, I go one or two things because then if I'm daunted, which sometimes I do, I just get like, I know this needs to be fixed and I just don't know how to fix it yet. But if there's one or two things, then I can start working on it that even that little bit of writing teaches you what might come next. I'm somebody who really does believe that the writing itself teaches you what it wants to be, but you have to be, you know, in in relationship to it as well as in control of it. So there's a kind of balance between you're in charge, the writer is in charge, but you have to respect what it is in of itself. You can't, you know, there's a couple of shows I worked on on television where I got in trouble, especially on one thing I was working on where some of the management team had a much more restrictive idea where they would say, we want you to do this, 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 and this. And I felt like some of the things they were asking me to do, I literally couldn't do them. The character would never do them. And so I would always try to think and basically come back with the question, well, what are you looking for? What effect are you looking for? You know, because I may not be able to do what you've just dictated, but I can get that thing that you're looking for. Maybe it's a different character who says this line you're looking for. Maybe it's a different scene that establishes what you're looking for. But I think there's a lot of confusion sometimes, I guess you would say, about how control over writing reveals itself, that you honestly can't just do anything. You have to respect the rules of the universe that you've created, but you can't let the universe just run away with itself. You know, like at one point when I was earlier in my career and I, you know, I got very good at just letting characters kind of, once you've created them, you can follow them around and just write down what they say. But that tends to be a little too sloppy. You know, you can't really just let them do anything they want. But at the same time, if they're not in their own kind of lively space in your imagination, then it's very hard to just make them do everything. They have to start doing it themselves. And then you kind of, it's like you steer the boat. How would you say that the revision process, as we talk about it, differs between those mediums? How does it differ from writing a script to writing? novel, obviously a novel's a lot longer, to writing a play. Honestly, 
I would say this is something that I've discovered as I hop around these different forms. I'm not the only one who's done that. Sometimes people say to me, wow, you do so many different kinds of writing. And I'm like, you know, so does Michael Frayne. Or, you know, so does, there's a lot of people out there who did a lot of different, you know, like Oscar Wilde is one of my heroes. But one of the things that I've discovered is that television and playwriting are very similar. They're energetically similar in a way that fiction and film are energetically similar, which is not something that I knew going into this. But when you're working in television or in the theater, basically, you're really standing on character and dialogue. It's the sort of heart and soul for me of those events. Even the most absurd or postmodern plays really rely on character and dialogue the way that TV and film also does. And the other two are more around a kind of a narration of the universe in a more literal way, you know? Kind of hard to explain, but I think that's true. So when when I'm rewriting in TV or the theater, for me, I need to very much stand inside the characters and say, okay, guys, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna push the situation a little bit in this way. And you're not so mad at, you know, but I have to really find the, the character, the emotional action of everybody before I can move things in that direction. You know, like, okay, we're going to rethink these 30 pages a little bit because I need to add this new element. I'm going to change a big element of the story. And to get myself to do that, I think often you can't just do that. Like this thing I'm working on right now, there's a situation where it's a daughter and her father, and she's very angry with him. And he's very tired of being pushed by her. And it was getting too hot too fast. And so I, I sort of had to ease some different elements into the storytelling and then figure out how to calm them both down. You know, that I figured out that she needs to be handling him, you know, that she is not quite at the end of her rope. She's at a place where she's really trying to negotiate his anxiety well beyond what she should have been. I actually think that then my first draft was very, very useful in terms of building the second draft because, in fact, finding out that the situation they're in is so serious that she really is this hot, this much at the end of her rope, and then having to dial that down pushes her into a place where she's enabling. And I did not quite realize then the power of the dysfunction, of his dysfunction, has entered her much more thoroughly. And that makes for better drama because then both of them have to be shaken out of this terrible spot they've gotten themselves into rather than she's not in that spot with him in the first draft, but I've got to get her. And I didn't understand that. So there is a way to think about drafts as ways to reveal character, the ways character reveals itself to you as a writer, and then how to shape that. In film and television, there's much more the narrative control from the creator side steps in, and it's just more structural. 
you know, where you go, okay, I need this event to happen and this one here and this one here. And because so much of the narration of film and TV takes place on this kind of larger universal plane, as the narrator and the writer, you can just move in and, you know, do it. You don't have to make friends with everybody and (laughs) get them to do it for you. Love that. I have a couple quick bonus questions, Teresa. The first one being, if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, well, usually we say fast food, but no one ever wants to go to a fast food restaurant. So we'll say restaurant. Which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why? Oh, wow. I would take... That's such a hard question. I have like three versions of an answer. You know what I mean? Because you go, okay, well, that's like a really good question. And I think probably I would... You know, I'm curious. I'd love to sit down and have dinner with Shakespeare. My three favorite writers really are like, well, I have a lot more than that. Shakespeare, Moliere, Tennessee Williams. But I think I would go with Shakespeare because I feel like the range of his theatrical imagination was so mighty while his character work was also so specific and his language was so complex. And I would like to just hear what he had to say about the universe and history, you know, all the things that you want to know that he would know about our time. And I'd probably take him to this restaurant in my neighborhood. It's called Aldi La. The food is so delicious and the people there are really kind. It's Italian. I like Italian food. (laughs) And some of his plays take place in Italy. That's right. That would be why. That works. Love that. The next final question. If there was one learning or insight from your entire career to pass along to writers who are listening right now, what is the one thing you'd say? You know, everybody's full of different ideas about how to do it. And the only time I know that I should not be listening to somebody who's giving out unasked for advice is when they tell me to stop writing. I think stop writing is the worst piece of advice anyone can give to a writer. So if anyone ever says to you, stop writing, don't talk to that person. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't listen to that person. Just like go, oh, this isn't... I have to say, at one point, I finally heard it come out of someone who I knew did not wish me well. And I thought, that's really bad advice. And so my advice to writers is to keep writing. I think, you know, there's that kind of crazy out there truism that came from Malcolm Gladwell that, you know, you're 10,000 hours. And I think that that's not crazy advice. I think that's very good advice. You know, I think the argument that the more you do it, the better you get at it is a good argument. I think that Shakespeare's later plays are decidedly better than his earlier plays and that we grow by doing it. Love that. Teresa, I've had a lot of fun today. Our last question, very last question. Did you have fun talking to us about writing process? I know it was a little brief, but I believe it was action packed. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> awesome. Happy to hear that. Is there anything you want to shout out? Anything you want to plug? Maybe your social media? Yes, absolutely. Follow me on Twitter. I generally am out there tweeting about theater and politics. Nothing terribly controversial because I don't believe in being mean on social media, but usually I have plenty to say. Awesome. And what's your handle? Teresa Rebeck. There it is. Teresa Rebeck. 
If you're listening, check out Teresa's Twitter, check out her work. Teresa, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. This is really charming. I really appreciate it. Thank you again. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.